Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, it's a blessing to be here today. So, Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor, wrote a book after World War II called Man's Search for Meaning. And you should want to share this quote. He said, It is the very pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. It's the very pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. See, he, during the war, during World War II, he spent three years in Nazi concentration camps of various camps. Uh, his whole family, his wife, his parents, his siblings, all died, along with, of course, death, suffering and death was all around him. And many people were murdered, just outright murdered. But he also noticed that many other people died because they lost the will to live. Those, however, those who had a purpose in life, uh, who had hope beyond that was very tangible to them, uh, they were more resilient when facing the suffering that was all around them and the death. But those who were living for happiness, who seemed to just be living in the moment, uh, not living for meaning, were more likely, or excuse me, those who were not living for happiness but living for meaning were more likely to survive the concentration camps. In the decades since, research has affirmed the truth of Frankel's belief, and while a happy life and a meaningful life have some overlap, there aren't total opposites by any means, nonetheless, they are ultimately different in profound ways. Nielsen McKay, who was a writer about a decade ago, uh, summarized research on this subject in the new criterion uh, with these words, and I quote, leading a happy life, the psychologist found in many studies, is associated with being a taker while leading a meaningful life corresponds to being a giver. Now, we can learn much from God's common grace and general revelation, which is really what I've been relating here, but what does the Bible tell us about happy lives and meaningful lives, about being a taker and about being a giver? And our text today, which is Psalm 90, addresses this subject. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there uh, as I set up the text just a little bit here. There are three questions that are central to uh, happiness and meaning that we see answered here in our text in Psalm 90. The first is, the first question that we all should always ask about anything, who is God? Right. Theology is where we always start, the study of God. Who is God? Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 90 tell us this. And second question is, what is man? Verses 3 through 12 in Psalm 90 speak to this. And then finally, the third is, where is our hope? In verses 13 through 17, or a prayer of hope on the part of the psalmist. Now, it's important to note that these questions build on each other, right? We cannot begin to answer number two unless we answer number one first, uh, because there is a contrast between God and man, between God and humanity. We must account for that before we can possibly know who we are. We must know who God is. And then for us to know where our hope is, again, is built on we have to answer the first two. We have to know who God is and we have to know who we are before we can possibly begin to understand where our hope lies. So I'm going to read just a moment, Psalm 90 here, but I want to note a few things. It is probably the oldest psalm. Uh, it's attributed to Moses. Um, and it is apparent from the text there are a lot of verbal links to the book of Deuteronomy, which makes a lot of sense. 
that Moses would have written, written this psalm. There's a lot of common wording. It's also the first psalm of book four. Uh, the Psalter was divided into five books by the Hebrews, and we now begin in book four with Psalm 90. It's a psalm of lament, as we classify psalms, but it flirts with being a wisdom psalm, frankly. So there's definitely some overlap there. All right, so Psalm 90, I'm going to begin reading here. Uh, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So we begin, as I said, with the question, who is God? In the first two verses, right away in verse 1, we see, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. There is, again, a verbal link here with Deuteronomy 33, 27, which says that the eternal God is your dwelling place, Moses speaks to the Israelites. Uh, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. Who is God? He is their dwelling place. He is our dwelling place. So remember if you will, just briefly, the historical situation that the psalm is probably written of if it is, in fact, contemporaneous to, uh, to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, so the Israelites are delivered from slavery in Egypt, and they go out into the wilderness, and there, because of their sin, which we'll talk more about later in more detail, but they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness before they were able to be delivered into the promised land that God had for them, that God really went back to Abraham, a promise to Abraham and to his descendants. So here they are, after 40 years of wandering and all of the death, they are on the precipice of crossing the Jordan River and going into the promised land to take it. 
this promise that God had given them. And yet, how does the psalm begin? It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. God is their dwelling place. It was not the wilderness. It was not Egypt. It will not be the land, even ultimately. Ultimately, God is their dwelling place. He is their true dwelling place, and he always has been. And this is true for all of us. It always is. In Acts 17, the apostle Paul, uh, preaching to pagans, quotes a pagan poet and says uh, that it is in God that we live and move and have our being. He is our dwelling place. This is the position of the Christian. If we think, again, in the New Testament, we frequently encounter the phrase that we are in Christ, that we abide in him. Jesus himself says, abide in me. God is our dwelling place. Christ is our dwelling place. And this God, as we continue in verse 2, is eternal, we see. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There is no beginning nor no end with God. He is the creator. He is the author of all life. And in him must be the meaning of life. I just want to encourage us. uh, This is surely a commonplace to us as Christians, right? That God is eternal. Uh, He has no beginning, no end. He is permanent. Um, And we can easily just kind of just not really reflect upon what that means and how incredible that is. It is impossible ultimately for us to even imagine the infinite, imagine some, that there is no beginning and no end to God. But we need to reflect upon it. We need to properly consider it and pray that the Lord would give us that assurance that here is one thing that is permanent in life that we can count on that will not be transient, and that is God and God alone. As we're going to see... As we continue in verse 3 and on, uh, when we explore what is man, man is much different. Our, our life and our experience is much, much different. We need to appreciate the contrast between who God is and what we are. And so in verse 3, we read, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. What is man? Well, the point of the next several verses, as I said, is a contrast to verses 1 and 2. This verse 3 is a pretty clear, obvious reference to the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 2-7, we're told that Adam created, was created from the dust of the ground. And then in Genesis 3-19, after the fall of man, after Adam and Eve had sinned, We read this, that by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Note the contrast between, in verse 2, mountains. God exists before the mountains. Is there anything in our imagination that's more permanent than a mountain, right? I mean, a mountain just seems like it's forever, right? Um, Totally immovable, Uh, God is before all that. He's created that. And we, man, are dust. A nice little breeze will stir up the dust and move it along, right? There's nothing permanent about dust. So note this great contrast between mountains and dust. Um, in the, and we, uh, our destiny is to return to that from which we came, dust. We are transient. 
we will read as we continue of why this is. But for now, in verse 4, we read that for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, uh, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years, that's a long time, an entire millennium as we measure time. But it is just a brief moment to the eternal God. There are a series of metaphors now that begin in verses, verse, at the end of verse 4 and continue through verse 6 that all speak to temporality and transience of human life. That is, to be temporal. We are time-bound and to be transient. There's no permanence. Yesterday, uh, when it has passed, think of how quickly a day goes. I can specifically remember... Uh, a couple of important days in my life, my wedding day and the day that my first child was born. And I can remember, like, slow down. Like, I want to, I just, I, the day goes so fast, right? And you just want to soak everything up out of it. Because you know, I'm never going to have another day like this. The day just goes so fast, so fast. Watching the night, just a part of the day, a part of the night, soon over. A flood, we see in verse 5. Uh, that sweeps away. It shows just how transient life can be. There's no power like water to destroy property, to destroy life. Of all the natural disasters in the world, flooding takes far more lives and destroys far more property than all the rest combined. A dream, think of how transient a dream is, right? Uh, we, we dream during the night and we don't even know how long they last, but we wake and they're gone and we try to remember and we just can't grasp it, right? Very transient. And grass is the final metaphor here that begins at the end of verse 5 and continues in verse 6. Grass that is renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. It's just a reminder of how fragile life is, of how transient life is. I want to quote Derek Kidner commentary on the Psalms, Psalm 90 now. He says that the swift changes of metaphor here in these verses add to the sense of insecurity and flux. As I went through, if you felt like you couldn't keep up with the word pictures or maybe they kind of jumped around from one image to the other and whatever, this is probably the point. The Holy Spirit riding through Moses moves swiftly from one idea to the next and we can't quite follow and uh, yeah, that's the point. Right? It's very transient. That's the way life is. And so if we experience any kind of emotion as we read through this quickly, that speaks to us as well. And remember again the historical context. This is the wilderness generation. So for 40 years, they have wandered in the wilderness, always on the move, right? Wherever God led them. Uh, fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. So why is this? Why this picture of man that we see here in verses 3 through 6? Now, man as a creature cannot be eternal like God. So we have to be time-bound, right? We have to have a beginning, certainly. Um, but what about transience? Uh, is that natural, that uh, there's no permanence, that we, life is just very fleeting, uh, constantly in flux, constantly in danger? Is that God's design? Is that the way... Things were designed to be no. The answer is an emphatic no. And the reason we begin to delve into in beginning with verse 7. 
for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Man is under God's wrath. We are under judgment. We cannot begin to have a proper anthropology, the study of man, without understanding that. God's wrath is real, and we need to remember that. We need to remember it in our theology. We need to remember it in our evangelism. Uh, It is easy to uh, not want to think about it. It is is a temptation that many have fallen into to deny God's wrath. Uh, Some who even purport to be Christians are offended by the idea of a wrathful God. But Scripture tells us that God is a God of wrath. He is wrathful towards sin. Jesus himself speaks to this. In John chapter 3, he says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is bad news. Fortunately, as Jesus says here, there is good news that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That by believing in Christ, by repenting and believing in Christ, we can receive life, and be removed from God's wrath, for he has taken our wrath for us in Christ. If you are with us today and you are not a Christian, know that God's wrath is real, but that God has poured out his wrath on Christ, that all of his people would be saved, that if those who he quickens by the Holy Spirit, those he draws to himself will identify with Christ, they will identify with him in his life, that he lived the life that we could not live, that we are sinners, but Christ lived the perfect life from the heart, obeying his Father in all things, and that he was willing to offer himself as a sacrifice to take the death that we deserved on the cross, to bear the wrath of God in his person, in his broken body, and in his shed blood. That as Jesus says, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. But if we do not obey the Son, if we do not repent, if we do not turn to Christ and embrace him and identify with him by faith, then the wrath of God abides on him. So I pray that today would be the day, if you are with us and you are not a Christian, that today would be the day that you would repent and believe, that you would embrace Christ and identify with him by faith as he has identified with you in his death. So there's bad news about sin and God's righteous anger. As we continue in verse 8, we see that uh, you, God, have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God knows it all. That's an uncomfortable fact, frankly, isn't it? God knows it all. He, uh, even when we lie to ourselves. God knows our hearts. This uh, is something to always remember, consider, that there are really no secret sins when it comes to God, for he sees us from the inside out. Uh, And there is no escape in the sense within this life, for we read in verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our ears to an end like a sigh. All our days are lived under God's wrath. As we will see in the next few verses, 
toil and trouble are the lot of life. That is an effect of God's wrath, of his judgment upon sin. And our end is not triumphant. <laughs> right? We bring our years to an end like a sigh. It's over. I have visited with many, many people over the years who are dying, who even just recently had a dear friend who was 80 years old pass over a period of many months, frankly, and suffering near the end, and basically people are lying there waiting to die. There's hope in Christ, but even when there is hope in Christ, uh, you can't help but reflect in these times What's the meaning of this? Right? What's behind this? What, what should I get from this, Lord? Right? For our, our years come to an end like a sigh. Right? Like, why? Now imagine, and maybe you have experienced similar things. You've been with people in similar situations. Now imagine the wilderness generation. Again, the context of the Psalm 90 uh, coming right at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they, there was judgment upon the people to just remind us God had led them out of Egypt uh, miraculously uh, through the hand of Moses, but God had done the work, and they saw that, and now they were to be delivered to go to the promised land, this land of promise that God had given them, land flowing with milk and honey, much unlike slavery. They would have everything they need, but they needed to trust they needed to trust the Lord in order to receive this promise. And instead, despite a good report that the land was as wonderful as it had been described and that uh, from a couple faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, that they could just go up and that God could deliver them and defeat their enemies in the land and they could take the promised land. Right? The people rebelled. They were fearful. And so God sentenced them to death that all those who were adults at that time, who had rebelled, were accountable for that, and that none of them would enter the land, that none of them would receive this promise of rest in the land that God had given. So they wandered for 40 years in the, in the wilderness, struggling, suffering, basically just waiting for people to die. Not a lot of happiness and you have to think that they had to reflect upon what is the meaning of all this? What is the meaning here? See, like Adam and Eve, they did not trust God, so they took matters into their own hands and skipped over that uh, they had not been willing to follow the Lord by going into the land. So when he told them that they were uh, under a curse and that they would die in the wilderness and not go in, then they decided, well, we're going to go in anyway. Right? And that didn't work out very well. Right? A very stiff-necked people. God says go, we say no. God says no, we say go, right? And that is so often uh, how we are about things. It's easy to judge them. It's easy to judge others. Uh, but what about us? How do we often lack the faith to, to give, uh, to trust, and we just take instead? Now in verse 10, moving on, we read that the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Hmm. 70 to 80-year lifespan, we are told. I think we, that resonates with us. I think life expectancy is a little shy of 80 years in our 
country. Of course, there's great variation of that, but it's a general truism. We identify with that. But how fast that time goes. How fast it goes. I remember being young. People tell you, right, oh, enjoy life, it goes faster. When, when you first have children, you're, uh, at least in my case, I was a young adult, right, it's going to go fast. Well, they were maybe wrong because it went very fast, right? Past 50 now, and life is just, where did it go, right? Even that 78 years just goes fast. Life is so transient, it just, whoop, it's gone. And yet, if there's anything slow about life, if there's anything that makes us feel like it takes a long time, it's that it's full of uh, toil and trouble, Full of toil and trouble. This is the result of the curse of the fall that we spoke of earlier back in verse 3. In Genesis 3.16, uh, after Adam and Eve had sinned and fallen, God spoke to Eve and he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Even this great blessing of life uh, will come in pain. It will be toil and trouble for you. And in the following verses, God speaks to Adam and tells him of the curse that will fall upon him for his sin and disobedience. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So if... Life is full of toil and trouble if work is stressful and hard uh, on our bodies, on our minds, on our souls. If being a parent uh, is difficult and stressful, it's dangerous, frankly. It is because of the curse. It is because of sin. It is because of God's wrath that is upon human humanity. Now, as we reflect upon all of this, <laughs> This is kind of bleak, right? It should cause us to be sober-minded. It should cause us to face the facts of life, face reality. Again, uh, the Scripture tells us why these things, but even just being in the world, just being alive, just having eyes to see, and just general revelation, we can see that life is short. Life is full of toil and trouble. It's no picnic, right? We all, even a non-Christian, should be able to agree with that. And it should lead to what we see in verse 11. <laughs> Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Does all of this knowledge lead to the fear of the Lord, which is what it should? Not for very many. <laughs> the Bible gives us the facts of life. It gives us reality. But the children of this age, the world, interpret that reality of a short and turbulent life as an excuse to say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But this is a denial of the reality of God. See, when we try to find happiness in this life, we find emptiness. We find that we're really living a lie. So who is man? Or excuse me, who is God? He is good. He is righteous and created the world in righteousness. But what is man? He's a sinner. He lacks faith and love. He is a taker and not a giver. 
Brothers and sisters, there is no religion or philosophy that adequately explains reality except biblical Christianity. I'm going to repeat that. There is no religion or philosophy that, that exists that adequately explains reality except biblical Christianity. The Bible tells us reality, and it tells us the reason why reality is the way it is. Know the facts of life. They're in the Bible. Being a Christian is our only hope for living a meaningful life. It's because only a Christian has really come to reckon with the reality of life as it is revealed in Scripture, which is as it is revealed in generation all around us. So in verse 12, and I want to make a comment here quick that, I don't know, in, in my Bible and most Bibles that I had, verse 12 is lumped with verse 13, and there does seem to begin to be a petition here. Um, but it's interesting, I could not find a commentary, um, people who are a lot smarter and more learner than I am, who uh, did that, broke, broke this up this way. Everyone else put verse 12 back with verse 11 and what preceded it, so that's what I went with. Uh, but we do see here in verse 12 that there begins to be a petition, right? There is a desire for wisdom. And we are, again, reminded that, continuing with our theme, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, that the sacred writings, that's the Bible, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Allow us in our hearts, Lord, to reckon with the reality of life. The life is short. It is full of toil and trouble. It is because we live under your wrath. There's a curse because of sin. Allow us then to reckon with that, right? to account for the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. And it's only as we understand who God is and we enter into a respectful awe of him and a fear of him to follow him, to trust him, that we really have any knowledge at all, that we really have any hope at all to be wise. To quote here from Tripper Longman III, uh, the psalmist's first request here, we know, in, in, so in verse 12, this beginning a request here, the psalmist's first request is not to forestall death or remove misery, but rather to become self-aware. He does not want to live as though he is going to live forever, but rather in the knowledge of his mortality. Why? To have a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to live in an authentic way. So the psalmist, who is Moses, is not focused on happiness how to get on better in this life, per se, but on living in a meaningful way, living in a way that reckons with reality and looks to God alone for hope. So as, again, as we reflect upon the gospel, and we know that we, by nature and by choice, are sinners, and so therefore we are under a death sentence. There is deliverance, though, for those who repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. That by identifying by faith with Christ, we allow, we accept his life for our life and his death for our death. As the apostle writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we in him might become the righteousness of God.
That is our hope. And only those who have put their faith in God can join Moses in his petition in verses 13 through 17. It would be foolhardy, frankly, to do otherwise, as we see from the very first phrase. Return, O Lord, in verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. <laughs> Return, O Lord, is a cry only for those who are faithful, only those who trust in Christ and are living in obedience to him. Many years ago, I worked with a lady, very nice lady. Her name was Evelyn. And uh, she had a family, a couple, I think she had twin boys who were like in kindergarten and and uh, a guy, presumably a husband, right? And so she, we would converse some. She was a believer. Um, and then one day, I don't know how it came up, I was talking with her, and it, it came out that she wasn't married. She was living in sin. And I was shocked. And I said, Evelyn, you know? And she says, just the guilt. She says, I know, I know, it's sin. She says, and here's what she said. She says, I pray every day, Lord, don't come because I'm not ready. That's no way to live. My heart was, I mean, I was aghast, but it was also just this, as I reflected upon it, pity for her. To live in disobedience that she didn't want the Lord. That's our hope is that the Lord would return. That's Moses' prayer. That's how he begins. Return. Come back to your people. But if we're in sin, if we are resisting, we don't want that. This is also uh, a bit of an echo from verse 3, if you recall, that uh, you return man to dust, and we say, return, O children of man, that the Lord returns us back to what we became because of disobedience, because of sin. And yet he calls us to return, to come back to him. And when we do that, now we can cry out to him, return, O Lord. Come back. Bless your people. The desire here is for God's pity, his mercy, in verse 13. Have pity on your servants. Man has undone God's blessing, turning it into cursing, again, as we've seen. And now the prayer is, may God undo the curse and bring blessing. May he reverse what has been done. There is, again, a, a verbal link with Deuteronomy here in verse 13, Deuteronomy 32, 36, says, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. When we, we come to him in humility and repentance, he will have compassion on us. He will vindicate his people. And that is the prayer of Moses here in verse 13. And in verse 14, this is built upon, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. The Lord's steadfast love, we read here. This is the word, this is a part of the word family anyway, of hesed, which means covenant faithfulness. The cry is that God in his covenant faithfulness, would satisfy us. Again, in the morning, speaks to something renewed, a freshness, right? That God would return, he would come back, he would refresh us. And that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Ultimately, our only hope 
as we are answering this question, uh, where is our hope? Our only hope is in God's faithfulness to his promises. I'm going to repeat that. Our only hope is in God's faithfulness to his promises. It's in his character. It's in his power, what he would do. That's our hope, our only hope. And satisfaction is found only in God. Only he gives meaning to our lives. As again, we see in verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. (laughs) Again, we see here there's an idea of reversal, isn't there, right? As many days as you have afflicted us, As many years as we have seen evil, make us glad for that same. The Israelites had wandered and suffered for 40 years in the wilderness, and they had been slaves in Egypt before that. Moses' prayers that the Lord would undo all the evil and make his people glad. It should be our same desire, our prayer. As we said, life is full of toil and trouble, just naturally. How much more so is it for the Christian? You know, uh, Pastor Mike prayed this morning already for those who are persecuted. So many Christians persecuted. and We've just barely got started here in the 21st century, but there are more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. There's a lot of suffering for the name of Christ in the world. And don't think that... We don't have our share in that, and that we may have our share even in a greater way if we are faithful. Toil and trouble in life, trial and suffering. But God can make, he can turn that back and bless us for as long as we have been, in fact, longer than we will bear under suffering. Listen to the Apostle Paul, a verse that may be familiar. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Remember the Apostle Paul, persecuted, almost stoned to death, whipped, lots of suffering for the gospel. He says, for this light momentary affliction, all this stuff in my life, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What God has ready for those who love him is far surpasses anything that we will endure here. We need to have a vision of that. We need to be in touch with that. We need to be in touch with that hope that he provides. Again, that we would bear up. If we are focused on our circumstances here and happiness, we will lose the will to go on. But if we see meaning in what he is doing and preparing for us, and we look beyond, we will have more resilience. We will be able to be resilient in the face of suffering, even persecution. And then in verse 16, let your, ser- let your work excuse me, be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Again, our only hope is God's faithfulness. It's his work shown to his servants. Recall the desire for blessing to endure as long as cursing has. <laughs> what's a consequence or what's one of the blessings of that? The future generations will be blessed, right? We, did, we should desire, and I know that we desire a blessing for others for future generations, for others around us. As Mike encouraged us uh, to uh, into evangelism this morning already. Right. We want to be givers, not takers. When we receive, freely you receive, freely give. 
Give the gospel. Give that good news to others that you have received. Don't just hold on to it. As we turn to verse 17, I want to warn you that we're not almost done. So, there we go. All right, I said it. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on this. This is an important culmination of the psalm and of the prayer that ends this psalm. We read in verse 17, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Upon us, yes, establish the work of our hands. So we have seen a repeated, it's been put in a little different ways, but in this prayer, a desire for God's favor, his pity, his steadfast love, his glorious power, these all express a desire for God to make himself known to his people and bless them. He is eternal. We are temporal. He is permanent. We are transient. He is good. We are sinful. So there's this contrast that we developed in the first two parts. He is our only hope. And so the prayer and the desire is, that God would rescue his people, that he would come, that he, it's in his power, it's under his control. He will have to do this work. He will have to bless his people. And as we end here in verse 17, we see repeated twice the plea to establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, as you probably know, the repetition is a kind of a flashing red light of importance. So uh, even today, earlier, a couple of times I said something, a sentence that I thought was important, and I repeated it immediately. Call your attention to it for emphasis. So when we see this in Scripture, we usually don't see it just so in-your-face repetition. Usually it's uh, kind of poetic and things are said a little different way in the next line or whatever. Not here. Exactly the same, uh, essentially the same phraseology. Establish the work of our hands. This request, this phrase, is the culmination of Moses' prayer and of the entire psalm. So it's worthy of investment and understanding it. First of all, let me get some water. This is a frequent and important phrase in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is another link with Deuteronomy that ties Uh, Psalm 90 to the book of Deuteronomy and to the situation in which the circumstances in which the Israelites faced and lived at the time of the writing of the psalm and Moses' prayer here. Deuteronomy, as you may or may not know, it it just it means literally means second law. It's the second giving of the law that the uh, after the wilderness wanderings, which the Ten Commandments had been given. Mount Sinai, essentially at the beginning of that time, and now before they enter the land, the conquest of the promised land, God through Moses gives them, repeats the law to them in many ways. And five times this phrase, the work of our hand, work of your hands, is spoken of in Deuteronomy. And I want to read each of those. In Deuteronomy 14.29, and the context here is teaching on tithing. So I'll try to relate a little, just briefly, the context. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, says the, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And in 1615... And this context here is instruction on the Feast of Booze. 
For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. And then in 2419, again in Deuteronomy, in the context here is commands that are primarily concerned how to treat the powerless. There's kind of a, you, I think often a subtitle will be assorted commands or something miscellaneous, but most of them relate to this concern of God's. So here is 2419. It says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. In 2812, we read, The Lord, and here the context is blessings for obedience, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And in 39, the last one, the context here is promise of blessing for repentance. So there will be, God says, well, there will be, if there's disobedience and cursing comes, but you return and repent, here, the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. As temporal and transient people, the Israelites like hopefully us, and surely us, desire for the Lord to establish our work, to assure us there's meaning to our lives, that what we do matters. And I should say that our work here does not simply mean our occupation, right? our job or career, though it includes that. Uh, but it involves our life in our homes, in our neighborhoods, our families, our friends, church, our workplace, wherever the Lord might take us. And how can our work be established? How can that work be established? The first thing that we have to remember always is that God must do it. We see that repeatedly in verses 13 through 16 and here in 17 and in Deuteronomy. The plea is that God would establish the work of our hands, that God would bless the work of our hands. It is he who must do it. But, number two, this is important, we are not passive in that. <laughs> we must be obedient and participate in what the Lord does. So to have meaning to our work, we must be givers in that work, not takers. We see that in Deuteronomy, the links of this phrase, of the work of our hands, back to Psalm 90. What, what's the theme of these verses? We notice that there's care for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. The Feast of Booze is the context. What was the Feast of Booze about? It was to, for the Israelites to remember that they once were tent dwellers, that they lived transient lives going to and fro as they recreated, sort of kind of recreated their experience in the wilderness. And that they will be lenders, not borrowers. That means they'll be prosperous enough. But what does that mean? Uh, prosperous enough to, to be a giver, right? Not to just hold it on to ourselves but to be generous. So the lesson here is for the Lord to establish the work of our hands, that work must be focused outwardly on God and other people and not inwardly on ourselves. So to conclude, I want to look at two examples, two people who are examples of this at a time that is not too far removed from Moses' time in the writing of Psalm 90 in Deuteronomy. Just a few generations hence, they come to us in the book of Ruth. 
We're not going to read anything from there, so you don't need to turn there, though you can, I guess. But um, The book of Ruth is set at the time of the judges, and it's a dark time. There's not a lot of happiness, that's for sure. And because the, there's not a lot of happiness and it's a dark time because the people are disobedient. We're told repeatedly that there was no king in Israel in those days. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Obviously alluding to the fact that God's people need a ruler. They need a godly ruler to lead them. But where is the hope of that? Well, the book of Ruth begins to give us hope of that. So there was drought because of judgment for sin, no doubt. And so one family had left and gone to Moab, to a foreign land, and there they met tragedy. Uh, Naomi was the woman. She was widowed there. Her husband had died. She had two sons. They both died, leaving her daughters-in-law as widows. So now you have three widows um, in a society that is male-dominated. There are no options for women. Um, And she rightly discerns that she needs to return back to her homeland. Maybe there she can find some way to eke out a living. And her two daughters-in-law want to go with her, but she rightly, uh, fairly tells them that they need to stay here because the best path for them in life to find happiness in life is to stay here among their own people and have a new husband. They're young. They can marry again. She's old. She's not going to get married again. And ultimately, one of them takes her advice and stays Orpah. But Ruth insists on going with her. And she makes a commitment to follow Naomi no matter wherever she goes, and to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. She throws her lot in with Naomi and with Naomi's people and with Yahweh, with the Lord God of Israel. And she is, uh, we find, she does not do what is best for her own happiness. She does not serve her self-interest. She is a giver, not a taker. And she is commended, later in the book, for doing kindness. And this kindness is hesed. It's the steadfast love. It's the covenant faithfulness. It's the same word, the covenant faithfulness that God has for his people that is spoken of in Psalm 90. And she is commended for doing this, for, again, for participating in this kind of love that God has for his people. The other example, again, from the book of Ruth is Boaz. He, again, does not serve his own self-interest either. Uh, He is a landowner in Ruth, and she comes to serve her mother-in-law, who is now a widow. So she's serving those who are vulnerable. She serves as a gleaner. Uh, One of the verses in Deuteronomy spoke of gleaning, of leaving sheaves in the field for those who are poor, those who are sojourners, widows, fatherless. And she makes it a living for herself and her mother-in-law, both widows that way. And she is in the field of Boaz, who is a landowner. Uh, and it is requested, really short version here, but essentially they had laws and customs at the time where if a, a man died without an heir, that a relative of his could marry his widow and raise up a son to inherit his property, to uh, in his name, to continue on the family line and property. And so Boaz is requested to do this for Ruth, really, and also for Naomi, because it's really Naomi's family line that has, is at risk of dying out. But there is someone who is near, a nearer redeemer, 
who has the first opportunity to do this, but he passes because it's really not in his self-interest to do this because he would endanger his own inheritance, he says, and so he declines. He passes. But Boaz goes ahead and requires property and with it Ruth as his wife with, again, the expectation that if the Lord had blessed them with a son, that that son would be continue on the family line of Naomi's deceased husband. So we see that both, and, and I should point out that Boaz is serving two widows by doing this. Uh, again, he's being a giver, not a taker. He's not always doing what is right for him, what seemed to serve his own self-interest, but rather Naomi's and Ruth's interest. So both Ruth and Boaz were givers, not takers. They didn't focus on being happy in an unhappy time. But they found it by participating in God's work. I didn't say, I should have, that Boaz as well is commended for being the vehicle of the Lord's kindness, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness. Both are spoken of as doing hesed, participating in what God's doing, participating in his work, blessing his people, blessing those who are vulnerable, being givers. And the Lord established the work of their hands as they serve the vulnerable. Ruth with Naomi and Boaz with Ruth through Naomi. So what do I mean? How did he establish the work of their hands? And you may know the story. God granted them a son. They named him Obed. And through him, they became ancestors of David. Again, remember that the, this is the time of the judges when there's a desire that, hey, that we need a king. We need a righteous ruler of God's people. So through him, they became ancestors of David, and therefore, they became, found themselves in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Their work was established, and their lives still have great meaning to us today. Now, we will not always see the fruit of our labor for the Lord in this life. We might, and it's a great blessing if we do, but there's no guarantee. Remember not to be results-oriented. Be a giver and not a taker and leave the rest to the Lord. He will see fit to bless as he is willing. Ruth and Boaz are reminders that a meaningful life can happen to those of us who are ordinary. They're really just ordinary people, right? It doesn't require special gifting. It doesn't require special circumstances. Uh, the lesson here is not that we need to sell our house and go to Africa to be a missionary. Not that that is a wonderful thing to do. The Lord's calling you to do it. Um, but that isn't how we need to, what we need to do to be a giver. Life, live as givers, not takers in our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our church, everywhere we go. In so doing, God will establish the work of our hands and give our lives meaning uh, that will last beyond our lives. So let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for hope, Lord, that we have as your people hope in Christ, that we have hope beyond this life that you have imbued uh, in your purposes, Lord, to call a people out to yourself, to serve you, to love you, and you've given us the grace to do that, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, live according to your ways, that we would live in thanksgiving to you, humbly before you, uh, following Christ's example, 
laying down our lives, Lord, for others, being givers and not takers, Lord. We just praise you and thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.